Good morning, uh, and welcome to our final lecture in our 500th anniversary of the Reformation celebration. Uh, we've been blessed over the course of the year to hear from Michael Allen, uh, Richard Pratt, Timothy George, and Carl Ellis. Uh, but when we began to talk about this series, today's speaker was the very first person that came to my mind, and I'm thrilled that he's the one that's here to close out this series for us. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce Gary Lindley. Gary is a 1972 graduate of Covenant College, where he majored in history, history majors. Uh, he received his Master's of Education from Temple University. He is a history teacher at Chattanooga Christian School and has been for the last 37 years, and he serves as the Upper School History Department Chair. Uh, he and his wife, Pat, have five sons and live down the street in a home that they built, uh, and they are coming up, coming up on 47 years of marriage. Um, over the years, yeah, congrats. Uh, over the years, I've learned that Gary is something of a Renaissance man, building houses, um, being consummate hosts, loving the St. Louis Cardinals, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention his deep and abiding love for chainsaws. Um, many of us can point to teachers who changed the way we think or deeply impacted the trajectory of our lives, and oftentimes uh, both of those things go together. Uh, Gary Lindley is one of those teachers uh, for my daughter personally and for I know a number of you who were taught by him and by scores of students over the last four decades. I'm thrilled that he's with us this morning and I invite you to give a warm Scots welcome to Gary Lindley. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you, Chaplain Lowe, for those kind words, and thank you by your attendance for your invitation to speak today. Chapel is still voluntary, right? Chapel attendance. I, he said tongue-in-cheek. I'm uh, keenly aware that you are near the end of your academic year, that you've just returned from your spring break, and that you've sat through lots of chapel talks by now. I'm also aware that those who preceded me in this Reformation series were men with scholarly credentials. And while a Reformation talk may lend itself easily to an academic treatment, <clears throat> I'd like to speak to you from the heart. My prayer is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts might be moved to love Jesus more. In this sense, we love him because he first loved us. If you love me, keep my commandments. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Father in heaven, would you give us your Holy Spirit that by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts would be moved, quickened, enlarged to love Jesus more. May his name be magnified in this place. I pray in his name, Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Sometimes the impact and the thrust of the Reformation is reduced to a set of slogans. You probably know them. The several solas, sola scriptura, sola Christus, and so forth. To that original list, we may add reformed and always reforming. As best I can tell, and this with the help of Ligonier Ministries, this is not my work, that idea is traced to a devotional book written by 
one, I'll try his name, Jotikus van Lodenstein, in the year 1674. You don't know if I mispronounced it or not, do you? <laughs> he wrote in 1674, the church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. Uh, from the same posting, Van Lodenstein was a reformed pietist and he was part of the second, the Dutch Second Reformation. As such, his religious concerns were very similar to those of the Puritans in England. They all believed that once the externals of religion had been carefully and faithfully reformed according to the word of God, those externals would be doctrinal statements, a form of government, um, trying to establish some way to enact church discipline. Once those were established, the great need was for ministers to lead people in the true religion of the heart. They saw the great danger of their day as formalism. The danger of formalism, and again, these are not my words, is that a church member could sus subscribe to true doctrine, participate in true worship in a biblically regulated church, and yet still not have true faith. I'm pretty sure that formalism is not the great danger of our day. But possessing a true religion of the heart is still the great need. By that date, 1674, the initial energy of the Reformation was largely spent. Such classics of Christian orthodoxy as the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism had been produced decades and even a century earlier. The Puritan Revolution had ended in England, and in New England, can brush up on our U.S. history here, the Puritan cause had devolved into the halfway covenant, and soon enough into the Salem witch trials. On the continent, the Reformation cause was forever tied to the devastation and the division of the Thirty Years' War. And in France, the Huguenots had their backs to the wall. The Edict of Nantes was about to be revoked. Why is the church, the body of Christ, always in need of being reformed? Well, here's the core of my message. Because Christ is always being shoved aside, subtly replaced, ever so cleverly, or somehow neglected. The vibrancy and, yes, the difficulty of the Jesus who shows up in the Gospels is almost naturally substituted with a cardboard cutout of Jesus, a convenient Jesus. May I say it? An irrelevant Jesus. I've often thought, and I share this, I think, occasionally with my students, that a history of the church could be written with this theme. From Paul's letter to the Galatians, Across the centuries, right down to the present day, the church has been sidetracked regularly. When I say the church, I mean us. I mean us as individuals as well. Regularly by substituting something or someone else for the singular person and work of Christ. And while he's not considered a reformer, Luther's contemporary Erasmus said it best, perhaps, and most simply when he declared in his 
Philosophia Christi. Christianity is not formalism, special ceremonies, or law. Christianity is Christ. Well, let me ask what historically are some of the substitutes for Jesus. And not necessarily in any order of significance I would offer these. In the context of the Reformation era, and you know this from your Western Civ courses, such things as pilgrimages, relics, indulgences, these became substitutes for the living Christ. I mentioned a moment ago Paul's letter to the Galatians, where it appears that sets of rules, a sort of checklist for the self-righteous, is a ready go-to. Call it legalism, call it Phariseeism. I'm a Reformed Pharisee who is still in need of reforming. Typical substitutes for Jesus are various caricatures. Uh, reductionistic, I think, is the preferred term on this hilltop. Examples include the medieval reduction of Christ to judge, the modern reduction of Christ to all-forgiving friend. On my list of substitutes for Jesus, here's a difficult one. Doubts which I would define as actually believing in uncertainty. This substitute, doubts, is as fashionable as ever. And in recognizing the power of doubt, I would distinguish here between, on the one hand, asking hard questions or finding ourselves in hard places, which, of course, is true for every one of us, of facing trials or temptations, Again, true for every one of us. But then on the other hand, actually embracing uncertainty as if it were something to be cherished, something clever, the sometimes flippant, oh, I doubt it. Another one, man's pretended autonomy. A phrase borrowed from those Dutch neo-Calvinists who were popular up here in my day. Of course, this pretended autonomy, this uh, pretense that we are a law unto ourselves, it's at the very heart of our human predicament. And it's as true today as it ever was before. In academic institutions, pretended autonomy may look a lot like pride and sophistry. Forty-six years ago, Dr. Francis Schaeffer was a powerful influence on this campus. He identified, quote, personal peace and affluence, end quote, as the compelling idols for my generation of young adults. Just let me live my comfortable, self-absorbed life free of care and concern. Schaefer sensed that this is where culture and the church were headed. I think he got it right. Well, what about your generation? Now I'm on some uh, slippery turf here, but let me go for it. What are some of the current substitutes for Jesus? Dare we say idolatries? I may have this entirely wrong, but my observations include a couple of things. Number one, experiences. Continually seeking the ultimate experience, the very edge of adventure. Those experiences which are facilitated by mobility, travel, affluence. Never before in human history. I like to say that a lot as a history teacher. Never before in human history have so many opportunities availed 
Never before has it been so relatively easy to navigate from one exotic location on one continent to yet another exotic location on another continent. Never before has it been possible for the average Joe to circumnavigate the globe with such relative ease. And yet, as was the case for all previous generations, when an experience does come to an end, it immediately passes into memory. A pleasurable remembrance may be preserved on Instagram, and yet beyond retrieving. And so we seek one more titillating experience until, finally, we don't. A second substitute may be socialization, facilitated by all the forms of social media and by the ubiquitous devices. Never before in human history have we been so preoccupied with keeping up with hundreds and maybe thousands of acquaintances and even people we don't know in any meaningful sense. Never before has been simply hanging out been so easy. Someone's estimated that the average device user touches or strokes his device some 2,500 times a day. Commentator John Stone Street says, being connected is not the same as being in relationship. So these perhaps are some of the substitutes. I don't know your heart. You, of course, don't know mine. What are, what are our substitutes? The Reformation is associated with doctrinal and intellectual clarity. As a covenant student, I embraced this enthusiastically. Here was a remedy to my inarticulate fears that the Christian faith was intellectually indefensible, that it was no larger than asking Jesus into your heart, but of equal if not greater importance than intellectual clarity is the emotional embrace which prompts me and all who are fellow believers to be able to say in some form or another, I love Jesus. It took me a while to be able to say that in my intellectual pride. Who is this Jesus whom we say we love? Well, exactly a year ago, I heard these words sung at a Maundy Thursday service. They are from Christus Paradox by the Canadian hymn writer Sylvia Dunstan. I wish I could sing it for you. I can't. Let me read the lyrics. You, Lord, are both lamb and shepherd. You, Lord, are both prince and slave. You, peacemaker and sword bringer of the way you took and gave. You, the alpha and omega. You, whom we both scorn and crave. Clothed in light upon the mountain, stripped of might upon the cross, shining in eternal glory, beggared by a soldier's toss. You, the Alpha and Omega, you who are both gift and cost. You who walk each day beside us, sit in power at God's side, you who preach the way that's narrow have a love that reaches wide. You the Alpha and Omega, you who are our pilgrim guide. Worthy is the earthly Jesus, worthy is the cosmic Christ. 
Worthy your defeat and victory. Worthy still your peace and strife. You, the Alpha and Omega, you who are our death and our life. Most of you have heard, likely since you were a small child, the phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know the origins of this phrase. Perhaps it coincides with those turn-of-the-last-century hymns such as, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, or from Fanny Crosby's Rich Treasury, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, among hundreds of others that she wrote. As helpful and true as this language is, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's too easily misconstrued, I think, to mean something like a relationship with Jesus on my terms. As in the infamous t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy. Rather than a relationship with the person of Christ. A relationship essentially, perhaps even entirely on his terms. What are those terms? And as I move toward closure, let me speak of a few of those terms as I discern them, as they're given to us in Scripture. We may not define him. He defines himself, whether or not we happen to approve or appreciate. He says that he is exclusive. No man can come to the Father but by me. That doesn't sit well in today's culture. And he's supreme. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's manifestly approachable. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yet the very first words ascribed to him in Mark's gospel are these. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He is aggressively pursuing. I stand at the door and knock. He's the good shepherd who seeks and saves the 100th lost sheep. He's utterly self-sacrificing. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Finally, he is persevering in relationship. Abide in me and I in you. One of the great dangers in attaching the word Christian to an institution like Covenant or like the school at the foot of the hill, is that over time it simply becomes an adjective, sterile and mostly devoid of meaning. The person who's at the center of this adjective, Christian, is effectively covered up over time. The history of American higher education is replete with such examples. You know some of them. Harvard became by the mid-19th century the incubator of Unitarianism which relegates Jesus to one of history's good guys and not much more. As a Covenant alum, my challenge to this institution, this faculty, and to you as prospective alumni, a month away for some of you, a month and a half, my challenge is this. How will you keep the very person of Christ at the center and forefront of your enterprise? How will you keep the attempt at objectivity in your academic work from neutering and obscuring Christ in the preeminence which is trumpeted in the college verse? So in the end, what does Reformation always reforming look like? I believe that it looks like our college hymn. 
all for Jesus, which was for me, after many years, perhaps the richest treasure, and I took many from here, but perhaps the richest treasure besides my wife of nearly 47 years, which I took from this place. Again, I wish I could sing it for you, but I don't dare. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers. We sing, you sing that often here, I suppose. All my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Reformed and always reforming because the temptation is constant to displace him, even while paying him lip service. And then the last verse. Oh, what wonder, how amazing, Jesus, glorious King of kings, deigns to call me his beloved. Let's me rest beneath his wings, reformed and always reforming. Because in the end, who or what is truly worthy of your heart's allegiance? May your time at covenant prompt you in all sorts of ways to love Jesus more deeply and more thoughtfully. <clears throat> Let me close in prayer. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that verse which greets us out there on the north end of campus would always be the reality here, despite all of the cultural pressures to drift one way or another. The preeminence of Christ. Father, would you so establish that here? May the name of Christ be magnified always in this place. I thank you for the faculty, the staff here. I thank you for these young men and women. Oh, bless the work of their hands. Hold them close to you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.